start this new series that I've titled God's Story. And the title that I've given this week's message is, is Creation, a Story Unlike Any Other. I'm going to be treading into some water that I'm sure is going to excite some people and irritate others. So if you could all please stand now as we read the word and then we will get right into the teaching this morning. We're in Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 1, and we're going to read just the first two verses and could probably spend the rest of the year trying to figure this out, but we will give it our best shot today. Scripture tells us, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is God's Word, as powerful as it is. You may be seated. Father, as we come to your word this morning, just tune our hearts and our minds into what it is you have to say today. May we hear your words this morning, and may I be a vessel used of you. So may the words of my mouth, Lord, and the meditation of all of our hearts here this morning be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, our Lord and our rock and our redeemer. And ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So over the course of the next few weeks, this new series is going to look at how it is and why God's story is really the only story that brings any kind of semblance of order, that is any kind of solid worldview that we can rest on and understand. And it is the only story of all of the religious stories that are offered to us on planet earth that bring answer to the deep questions of humanity. So I've started out this morning with a quote that's on the front of your bulletin and it's expecting growth at the speed of a light or at the speed of light is unbiblical. Good growth happens only at the speed of a seed. Seems a little bizarre, that statement. That's the quote on the front of your bulletins. And I put that there because that's something that I put in the front of my Bible because I want to know answers and I want to know them before I ask the questions. And I think that we live in a culture and a society that's designed or that is moving in that way. And I always get concerned when we in our modern age and our way of Google thinking, as it were, believe that a simple read and a few words of a prayer will give us what we need to know from the Bible. Just a peripheral reading, maybe once or twice, or a book, or whatever it may be, gives us all the answers. Or that our sanctification, in fact, in Christ, when we accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, is something that we obtain the minute we say to him that we're sorry for the things that we've done. All of a sudden, we're at the end game, and everything is exactly as it should be, and we have everything we need. While in some sense, if we understand the doctrine of sanctification, some of that is true. In the here and now, however, we are, as St. Paul tells us, working out our salvation every day with what? Fear and trembling, which means we're working on it. We haven't attained it. We've attained it not in heaven, but we are working on it every day here because it never happens overnight. In fact, for all of us, this will be the endeavor of a lifetime. It will take us until the moment we step off into glory or Jesus comes back to take us home. It's not something that we are gonna actually find the end game of here, but we are to work it out every single day with fear and trembling. But we as a culture and a society have grown very accustomed to quick, easy, and right now type of theology. I want my answer. I want it simple. In three points in a prayer, you take too darn long to explain it. Give it to me so I can go, and then we're all good. You see, this understanding is going to be critical to our spiritual maturity, that it doesn't happen that way. We cannot have instantaneous understanding of the deep truths of God. 
Our problem is, is that a nanosecond lag in our internet and we just about suffer a massive stroke because we can't dial on when we want to dial on. And we think that Googling something or Wikipedia and something gives us all of the answers that we need and they're a profound and good substitute for deep prayer and deep study in God's word. See, but the problem is, is that the Bible doesn't offer us any quick fixes like that. It doesn't give us any really easy, how do you get there from here solutions just because we want it to. It doesn't do that. It sits very stubbornly and very joyously right in front of us as God's story, the complete redemption, not only of humanity, but all of creation and everything that he made. You see, for years as I was growing up as a Christian and I was studying for ministry, I would come to the Bible with the point of view, my point of view, my understanding. And I would read that into the scriptures. It's a particular theology, and theology is nothing more than really a fancy word of your knowledge of God, what you know of him. So right there ought to tell you that we're very limited. And then I would do the best that I could to map out just what things may or may not mean as I read through these 66 books of the Bible. What this particular prophecy means, maybe out of the book of Zechariah or whatever, or Isaiah, why this was said the way it was said and what it means when Jesus was coming back and what that was going to look like and should I look for this particular sign, should I look for that particular sign and what it's all going to look like as it plays out in the end. Do I need to just be standing there with my notebook taking all these notes down? That's how I grew. That's how I learned scripture. And none of that's really bad. In fact, it's good that we make the attempt to do that. But as anyone knows, context is absolutely everything and essential to understand. Without the right context, we tend to come with our own pretext into a text and then leave something that we read still with our own understanding and pretext without understanding what's going on. In other words, our understanding of history as 20th and 21st century people gets imparted upon a text that was written 2,000 years ago, and we read our knowledge and understanding into something that somebody said 2,000 years ago. What happens then most often is we end up way out of context, and we create our own story that may or may not be partially true in relation to what it is God has to say to us in this book. It's like coming to a Shakespearean play. This is the best way that I can describe it. As much of a scholar as I was in high school, I loved Shakespeare. So it's like you watch the first three acts and you're completely enthralled with the characters from the plot line of The Merchant of Venice. And then towards the end of chapter three, Portia becomes this, this big character and you're, you're watching her get ready to go into the court scene and why Shylock and his vengeance is, and his bitterness is so real and why this guy just isn't, you know, why he's got to be such a jerk. The curtain goes down on act three and then you sit and you wait and the curtain goes back up again in act four and then all of a sudden you find yourself in Anthony's living room with Octavian and all the other guys plotting the murder of the emperor. You've just gone sideways. Doesn't make any sense. You find yourself completely lost sitting in the theater knowing a bit, a little bit about two different plays. You get the first part of the play and then you get the second part but you get the second part of a different play. Because you're now watching the end of Julius Caesar and not the Act 4 and Act 5 of The Merchant of Venice. But you're completely useless to understand either because you didn't have the beginning of Julius Caesar and you didn't have the end of The Merchant of Venice. So you're left with trying to create your own story and make a bunch of assumptions as to what may or may not have happened. That tends to be how we read the Old Testament and then the New Testament is totally different stories with only one thing in common. We have one author and one character that runs throughout but we never make the connection on why one matters deeply to the other. 
We don't really need what the old offers, I'm told by some people. That frustrates me as a pastor to no end. We don't need what the old offers. After all, we have Jesus. Well, that's true. That's very true, but we wouldn't know at all why Jesus of Nazareth mattered and who he was without understanding the Old Testament and the fact that God had a plan all along and that plan found its complete fulfillment in and through Jesus of Nazareth and his death on the cross. The only way we understand what that means for us is to understand the Old Testament. Thus, it gives us the new when we can understand that. You see, but that it started somewhere other than Matthew 1.1 tends to scare people. And that if we don't have all of these acts together, as it were, we're just irritants with half a story trying to figure out why Jesus said a particular thing or why Paul keeps referencing this book in the Old Testament and what does that have to do with all of this stuff. But you see, half the story ain't no story at all. It's only half the story. Is he coming in after three acts having played out and then trying to figure out why act four is the way it is, is actually a good way a good many honest and genuine Christians approach the Bible. We launch ourselves into the New Testament trying to make sense of the whole thing but never really finding the reference point of who God is and why he said what he did. And then we're just left wondering why some of the things we read in the New Testament just simply don't fit. They make no sense to us whatsoever. See, the number one core value for me as a human being, and I pray it becomes, and it should be the core value of this church, is that the Bible is my guidebook for life. And if that's to be true, I have to know not only what it says, but why it says what it says and how I apply it every day to my life. So over the next several weeks, we're going to be taking a look at what I call God's story, the five-act play. And this isn't my invention. I'm not that bright of a guy. Okay, but you know, it seems to work for me. Okay, you'll find that over, I've found over the years that it works wonders really in helping me understand everything. Every Shakespearean play has how many acts? Does anybody know? Five. So it makes it easy for me to map this all out. And some pastors will call it a two act play, some other pastors will call it a three act play. I like the five because it breaks it down for me in a way that my mind can string all of the beautiful truths together from the very first verse that we read today all the way to Revelation chapter 22. You see, the Bible is, first and foremost, God's story and love and redemption of not just human beings, but the entire creation. That's what this is first and foremost about. It's not for us to map out how the end is going to look, necessarily. It's going somewhere. So you've heard me reference these over the past two plus years, and I think that it's, it's time that we map all these out. So here they are. Act one is creation. If those of you are taking notes, you want to. It's Genesis chapter one and two, and we're going to be looking at this for the next few weeks. We're going to spend some time in this, and I'll get onto that in a little bit. Act two is what I call the fall. It's Genesis chapter three through Genesis chapter 11, and what it looks like when humanity decides it becomes its own God. It doesn't want God as the king on the throne of their heart anymore. And when you read Genesis chapter three through 11, you see humanity spiral completely out of control right up into the Tower of Babel. And you have act three, which is the covenant starting in Genesis 12, one, and it goes all the way through to the end of the Old Testament in Malachi, the last prophet in the Old Testament where we find God launching his plan to fix broken humanity through broken humanity. Which is amazing in and of itself. The God of the universe who could have done anything that he wanted chooses human beings 
to fix what human beings broke when he calls Abram. And then we have Act 4, which is the new covenant. That is the birth, the life, and the death of Jesus, as we have told to us by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament. And I know some of you already know this, and that's okay. Be patient with those of us who don't. You see, this is going to help us to make sense of those verses that we read in the Gospels that simply say that Jesus did something in accordance with the Scriptures. What does that mean if you don't understand the Old Testament? Yes, we live in new covenant theology and new creation theology, but what does it really mean that Jesus did such and such according to the Scriptures if we don't understand the Old Testament? It has to mean something. It has to mean something. And then we have Act 5, which was launched with the resurrection of Jesus and the giving of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. It's called New Creation. We find there the absolute undoing of the curse in Genesis 11. If you read what happens in Acts chapter 2 and you overlay it against what happened in Genesis 11, you have the complete undoing of the curse, where all of a sudden people can understand languages again. But we'll get on to that at some other point because that will just take me off down a road we're not having the time to do today. Peter Enns, an Old Testament scholar, says this, that reading the Bible responsibly and respectfully today means learning what it meant for ancient Israelites to talk about God the way they did and not pushing alien expectations onto texts written long ago and far away. When we open the Bible and we read it, we are eavesdropping on an ancient spiritual journey. That journey was recorded over a thousand-year span of time by different writers, somewhere around 40, with different personalities and at different times under different circumstances and for different reasons. Now, that's from his book, The Bible Tells Me So, Why Defending the Scripture Has Made Me Unable to Read It, which is a bizarre statement for an Old Testament scholar. What we need to really focus on, just by a way of an aside here, is what does the cross really mean? Everything drives to the cross. No matter what direction we go, when we launch out of Scripture, it always ends up at the cross. What does the cross mean? Jesus died for my sins. He died for your sins. We celebrated that in Holy Communion today, yes? But what does it really mean? Was that all he was doing there? Did he just go to the cross just to die for me and for my sins? The Bible tells us he died for the sins of the world. He actually put sin itself to death. That brings a lot deeper meaning to the cross of Jesus than just he died for my sins. He put sin itself to death and launched new creation. He came out as a resurrected human being in the middle of time and in the middle of history. That could not have happened were it not for the cross. It's so much more than just he, he died for my sins and that's why he was on the cross. Yes, that's why. But he was dying to kill sin in order that we are no longer bound to it anymore. And now we'll spend most of the rest of the year trying to figure that one out. But moving on. See, this book that we have in front of us, God's Word was written to a people. Sometimes you'll hear it said. It was written to a people but it was inscripturated and left for us because this is my guidebook for living. It's how we know who Jesus is. You see, to understand that will help all of us to begin grasping just how wide, how deep, how rich, and how powerful and how true God's story really is that we have here in the 66 books before us. 
And then we can ask the question and then answer the question why it needs to matter to the world around us. Why it is it matters to the world around us. So hold on, because here we go at the speed of a seed. Just getting started. How fast does the seed grow? Slow. Depends on the plant, doesn't it? So look around for a second before I go on into the next point here. Every one of you is a different kind of seed. Every one of you grows to a different kind of plant. Read 1 Corinthians 15. Each one of us is different, which means we all grow at a different pace. Let's move at the speed of a seed. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said. A text which on the surface seems extremely simple for us and plain to understand if that's just where we want to take off from. In the midst of all of the ancient Near Eastern creation stories that were around at the time that Moses said this, steps in this notion that Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, did not come from the created order that human beings saw. That he, in fact, created the order. And not only that, that he created every single thing that we see, every single thing that we know, every single thing that we feel and touch, he created it all out of nothing. All packed into those two short verses. You see, the story's never been told in this way before. Not ever, not once. There are a lot of creation stories, and people who are not believers of the Bible will tell you that this is just another creation story. Well, it is, but it is the most unique, and it had never been told this way before. Because it had proof, it had validity to it. It had an understanding of the cosmos and, and the universe that none of the other ones did. One Old Testament scholar states that because of that, it turned the ancient Near Eastern world completely upside down. Looking at the verse that way, that out of nothing came absolutely everything, all of a sudden we now have issues. Because it was never said before. Both within the church and without of the church, we begin to argue just what that may mean and just what that may look like and just how long that may have taken and all of that stuff. Arguing about things which aren't clear and losing sight of the clear and deep theological truth of the creation that God created with a word. That's what we need to understand about Genesis 1. God created with a word. See, John, in his dramatic retelling of the creation story, reframes that story in and around Jesus of Nazareth. When he opens his telling of the gospel this way, in the beginning was what? The Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. See, this is a very familiar story, is it not? All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. What John the Apostle was doing was bringing Genesis 1 together into his world and reframing that story around Jesus of Nazareth and saying, this is not a new story. Jesus was the fulfillment of it, and oh yeah, by the way, he was there. He was there. Two very plain texts for us framing out the creation story as God's story and he being the principal and only creator. There is no other God. He is the creator. You see, God created, the spirit hovered, and the son spoke. 
There's the Trinity right there. He was and is the Word. And that's what John's framing out for us in John 1, 1 through 5. Jesus of Nazareth was the Godhead in all of his fullness, as Paul tells us in the book of Colossians. Everything strings together and is consistent. You see, we lose this when we forget that the plain things of the Bible are what we are supposed to focus on, not the things that are unclear for us. Everything that is clear for us is what is absolutely essential and important for us to learn. It doesn't mean that when things are unclear that they're unimportant to us, okay? So let me make that clear. Just because it's unclear doesn't mean it's unimportant. So if you want to send me an email, you want to yell at me, you can do that. But I'm just going to give you the same answer right now. Just because it's unclear doesn't mean it's unimportant. We're just not supposed to focus on the unclear. We're supposed to focus on what is clear for us in, in the text. Because if it's unclear, that simply means that they are not the main salvation message things that we as God's people need to know. Because it's God's story, and as we learned last week, our focus is to be where? Upward and outward, not inward. So everything we do and we need to know is what brings God to the front of the story. Not me and not you, but what brings God to the front of the story. See, John closes his gospel with this statement in chapter 20 and verses 30 and 31. And yes, I do know that there is a 21st chapter in John, but he closes his gospel with these two verses. Now, John did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name salvation stuff. John is telling us that what is plain and clear and given to us is what we need to know in order to have a right relationship with God through Jesus. So what that means is that all of the plain statements of Scripture for life in the name of Jesus, who leads us through the Holy Spirit to God the Father. Does that make sense? Okay. But the problem we discover when we begin to read and study things like Genesis 1 is that we tend to focus on the not so plain things. And I am convinced, in a nutshell, why that is. It's easier for me to argue with you about how old a rock is than to deal with how wicked my heart is. That's the issue. I can argue all day long about how old a rock is. I don't want you to tell me I've got a wicked heart. But that's the problem. Human beings, if we are given a chance, will always overcomplicate and mess things up. It's just our nature. It's easier to argue over traditions and opinions. You remember those circles that we talked about last year? You got your essentials, then you got your traditions, then you got your opinions. It's easier to argue over traditions and opinions than to focus on how it is we need to be more like Jesus every day. How it is we need to live out the gospel calling. So what you end up with is a bunch of theological nerds in a room circling around just what the timeline looks like. Was there a break here and was there a break there? Is that Hebrew word just the right thing here? And is there thousands of years here? Missing the entire point, the entire point that Moses and the writers of the Pentateuch put together was this, that God made it all. God made it all and that this is his story. And he's given it to us. 
We don't focus on that. The point was never to establish things like timelines and all that. It's not meant to be offensive. It's not meant to generate more emails, but you know my address. That's not what we're looking at. This was the deep theological statement that had never been made before to humanity. And we are arguing over non-main things. So for the next three weeks, we're going to spend time here in Genesis 1 and 2, mostly because, you know, I like to take a beating. But I believe, I believe that they are very important to us in our understanding of God and his story. These two chapters are the foundational chapters, which is probably why they're at the beginning, because God knows what he's doing in relation to his story. These are the foundational chapters we need to have. If we cannot settle the biblical truths being stated here in these five words, which shook the world and still do, in the beginning, God created. That's where everybody stumbles. Because if we cannot believe that, the rest of this book breaks down into what the culture and most of this world thinks it is, a bunch of fable, myth, and nonsense for scared people who weren't quite as smart then as we are today, thanks to science and the enlightenment, because we've got it all figured out. Really read the paper. Give yourself 30 seconds, and you'll find out that we don't. And as much as science does for us, it can never come up with the cure for the wickedness of my heart. It can't come up with a cure for the wickedness of your heart either. So what's important is that God created, and then when he did, he did so with a purpose, and he did so with a plan in mind. And there's a couple of things that need to be made very plain for us and clear again from these two chapters. So in looking at them, as I say, I'm certain that I'm going to upset some, and I'm going to make some very happy. It's okay. I'm going to unsettle a few when I spend very little time on some of the things that some people feel very important most especially we here in the Western church, we want to make the prime points of the two chapters of Genesis the non-prime points. And that's okay. We're going to take a look at the seven days of creation and ask the question, why would God repeat himself? Not seven days repeating himself, but why he would repeat himself. You see, no less than five times in the creation of this good world, he says what? Good Yet in trying to understand the creation story and why God created anything at all in the first place, we gloss over the fact that he repeated himself because we're focused on the wrong things. If he did that, it is important that we know or at least attempt to know as best as we can as human beings why God said five separate times it was good. That is critical for us to know because it's clear in the text. So we have to know that. And then we're going to take a look at the very good statement that God himself makes just before he rests. Because within that statement, we find, guess what? Us. The image bearers of the creator of the universe. We find God's friends, God's companions. That's what we find. We find perfect, complementary counterparts. That is until chapter 3, and we mess the whole thing up. That's for a few weeks down the road. See, within this is the biblical establishment of marriage, what that is supposed to look like, how it's defined, which puts us over and against the culture. And it makes people uneasy, but it is right here. And it's a topic that I'm sure is going to bring some frustration and I hope clarity from God's word at the same time on how we as human beings, and hear me, love one another in spite of each other's sin. That's called grace. How we love one another in spite of each other's sin and rebellion. 
We have to get a hold of that. Living within community, most especially where new people come in and they join and they visit, means that we have to understand justice. We have to understand mercy. And we have to understand the love of God for his creatures. It doesn't mean we change the biblical story. It doesn't mean we change the biblical story to match our culture. It does, however, mean that we have to live, not just speak, but we have to live the biblical story out in the midst of a culture that is absolutely lost and confused and at times may mean for us being much more loving and tolerant to a people who we probably don't want to if we are honest with ourselves. But if we are going to be God's people for God's world, that's what we are called to do. That's what we are called to do, to be in the places of darkness, not leaving the gospel behind, not leaving God's story behind and trying to figure out a way to fit in, not at all, but stepping into that darkness with the light and the truth of the gospel and understanding love and justice. If I could have the worship team come forward because my time is out and we have to end. And some of you are probably saying, thank you, Lord, while others are ready to move on. What I want us to discover as we close in song here in all seriousness in Genesis 1 and 2 in the creation is that God loved his good creation. That's one of the first things. We tend to forget that. God loves his good creation. He created it. He loves Adam and Eve so much that the moment they blew it, he fixed the mistake. Did he not? We're going to learn that when we talk about the fall, but he fixed the mistake. We're going to learn that God, as I have said so many times before, could have fixed this mess any way he wanted to. Any way he wanted to. But he chose to call Abraham, a broken human being, to move forward the plan of God to help fix broken human beings. What's most important, as we close in one last song, is that God himself came in the person of Jesus, a human being. A human being. Promised in Genesis 3.15, he came as a human being. He could have come any way he wanted. He came just like you and me. Why? Because God chose human beings to affect his plan of redeeming this world and his people. So I close with this as we close in prayer. If you would all please stand. One of the most important things we have to remember is this. Those who could come forward for prayer, I would appreciate it. Take your places, please. If Jesus, if Jesus went away, and he promised to come back to take us to where he was, but he left us behind. The question I challenge you this week with is, why did he leave us behind? I've been saying for two years, and I will continue to say that he left us behind because we have work to do. We are God's people for God's world, living out the gospel truth and the promises of God before a world that is completely lost and spiraling out of control. We have work to do until the day he comes back to get us or we go to meet him. So my challenge to you this week is, what is my part in understanding God's story 
What am I supposed to do to impact my little world, to affect the people in my life? Who can I pray for? Who can I buy a cup of coffee for? Who can I be Jesus to? Let's pray. Father, as we close this morning, just big words. For some of us, I know myself included, there's hard words, how it is we can live these things out. The most important thing that we need to understand is that you continually, day in and day out, come looking for us, even when we're trying to hide from you. And that, to me, is one of the most hopeful things in the world. Your word from the very beginning in Genesis onward, you come looking for us, even when we don't want you to find us. Encourage each one of us today that that is how passionately you love us, that that love is what drove Jesus to the cross, that it is that love that you looked at us and said, now you go and you do the same things that I did for those who don't know who I am. Help us to rest in that hope and that powerful truth that you love us so much that you gave your one and only son that whoever believes in you would have life everlasting and we would do so in his name. Amen. I think any person that has been around for a little bit, I can attest to that, would agree that life is a series of the mountain highs and the valley lows. And this song is a simple summation of that and a little bit of advice on what we should do. Oh God, 